Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and we're pretty proud of that. I've just arrived back again from Sao Paulo, and I'm settled back in Los Angeles for at least a week or so before I go to Miami for a few days, which should be lovely. We're now in our fourth year of the show, and uh, we started off with a 13-week trial, so we figure we've done pretty well. And if you've missed any of those shows... And uh, there's about 180 great interviews in there. Then um, go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, and you'll find all the shows and uh, the interviews. There is a heap of great information from some of the most successful people in the world in in that library. So I um, urge you, if you're in business, to go along and uh, have a listen. You know, I've worked with literally hundreds of startups and all sorts of large and small corporations over the years. And uh, that experience has taught me a lot of lessons. And uh, in business, it's what you know. And it's also knowing the tricks so that you can um, stay out of trouble and know how not to make the mistakes that people that have gone before you have gone. So, um it's a good. It, it's worth having a listen. A special big, big welcome if you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for the first time. I hope you stay with us for the next four years. Did you hear about this this week? It turns out that the U.S. government spies on mobile phones from the sky. So why am I not surprised? Apparently, the U.S. justice officials are scooping up mobile phone data from. I guess, unwitting Americans, as part of a very sophisticated airborne surveillance program designed, of course, to catch the bad guys. Small aircraft, which are deployed by US Marshals from at least five major airports, have been taken to the skies with what they call dirt box equipment designed to mimic signals signals from cell towers. So that, in turn, tricks mobile phones into revealing unique identifying numbers and general locations. It's interesting that the name Dirt Box was said to be derived from an acronym of Digital Recovery Technology Inc., the Boeing subsidiary that actually makes the device. The range of aircraft in the program covers most of the US population, according to um, unnamed sources familiar with the operation. They're said to take place regularly with each outing, potentially gathering data from tens of thousands of mobile phones. So not surprisingly, the US Justice Department declined to comment, other than to say that its agencies comply with the law when it comes to surveillance. Sure they do. Why would I have any doubt? Now, hackers have demonstrated that while mobile phones are programmed to connect with the closest signal tower, they trust signals from towers or imposters when it comes to them making decisions. 
So boxes in planes automatically assured these mobile phones that they're the optimal signal tower, then accept the identifying information from handsets that are out there looking for connections. Then fake cell towers pass the connections onto real cell towers, remaining as a conduit with the ability to tune in or block digital transmissions. Hackers refer to such tactics as man-in-the-middle attacks. Of course, the American Civil Liberties Union, guess what they said? They call it dragnet surveillance that is absolutely inexcusable. Now, of course, they're, what they're doing, they're trying to get out there and catch criminals or those suspected of crimes, but it collects data about everybody else who connects. So after sifting through all the data, investigators can determine the location of a targeted mobile phone to within about 10 feet. Wow. Trust in U.S. Authorities, I guess, have already been pretty shaken by revelations about uh, sweeping internet surveillance programs as exposed by one Edward Snowden. I must admit I'm sort of betwixt and between on this because while I don't love the idea of the government knowing what I'm talking to people about, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you should have nothing to fear and if it saves a bunch of innocents being blown up by a maniac then I guess I'm all for it. Anyway, it's a trick question. I love stories about people creatively making money. I mean, that's what we're all here for, right? Well, most of us. So this caught my eye this week. 25-year-old Nick Walter has created a major income stream from online courses. But wait, it gets better. When the iPhone started taking over the US in 2008, Nick Walter was in Japan doing Mormon missionary work without a smartphone. When Nick got home from Japan, his dad bought him an iPhone 4. And this was his introduction to apps. Since that first introduction, Walter, who graduated from Brigham Young University with an information systems major, learned to code and started doing freelance work building iPhone apps for local companies in Utah. About four years later, so we're now talking about 2013 about, Walter was reading the four-hour work week. And he was inspired by the idea of creating a business that wasn't super time-intensive. Now, author Tim Ferriss recommended that Walter create an online course, but Walter didn't know what he could possibly teach until Apple announced its first new programming language called Swift. So he realized that from the day they announced it, everybody was on an equal playing field trying to learn. So... Just for fun, he realised he had the opportunity to be one of the first people to teach it to other people. He realised he could make a class where he would be learning as he was teaching. So he's going to learn and teach at the same time. What a cool idea. So he spent four days reading Apple's documentation of Swift. He translated it into English and put in some more examples. 
Apple announced its release on June 2nd, and four days later, Walter posted 50 videos, or one full course, to the online education site Udemy. It was an introduction to Swift for beginners, called Swift by Examples. So he didn't have a clue what it was about, only what he had read. So he decided to teach other people as he went along, as he learned. The first first month, he earned $45,000. Now, Udemy charges students a set price, $99, to access the online courses as many times as they want. So if these students find the course through a link sent by Walter, he gets 97% of the money. If they find the course through Udemy, he splits the money 50-50 with the company. So he then put up a new course, was called How to Make iPhone Apps. He put it up for $199. That month, he earned $66,000. So one might imagine a 25-year-old with that kind of windfall would head straight for Vegas. But no, Walter bought a 2010 Toyota Corolla, got a full emergency fund set up, and he's been investing the rest in mutual funds. Today, more than 8,500 people have taken the original course on Swift, and more than 3,500 have gone through the iPhone class. Next, Walter plans to establish a class on how to build apps for the Apple Watch, and he's now running a Kickstarter campaign to fund it. Tell you what, Walter proves that there's a lot of opportunity out there for someone who wants to create the kind of income stream that he has. And if you can move quickly enough, you're bound to have an awesome advantage. To most people, I know me, when you're young, I mean really young, getting rich and becoming a millionaire by the age of 30 just seems like a fantasy, doesn't it? Or it did. In those days. However, today it is really very possible. Let me give you the 10 steps that will guarantee that you become a millionaire by 30. Firstly, follow the money. We've heard that before, haven't we? Um, In today's economic environment, you cannot save your way to be a millionaire. It's just not possible. So the first step is to focus on increasing your income in increments and just continuing to do it. Secondly, don't show up. Don't show off. Show up. Don't go and splurge on luxury watches or expensive cars or clothes until your business and investments are producing multiple secure flows of income. Be known for your work ethic, not for the trinkets that you buy. Thirdly, save to invest. Don't save to save. The only reason to save money is to invest it. Put your saved money into secured, untouchable accounts. Never use these accounts for anything, not even an emergency. This will force you to continue to follow step one, which is to always increase your income. Now, the fourth step to becoming a millionaire by the time you're 30 is to avoid debt that doesn't pay you. So make it a rule that you never use debt that won't make you money. For example, it's okay to borrow money for a car only if the car's going to help you increase your income. 
Now, rich people use debt to leverage investments and grow cash flows. Poor people use debt to buy stuff that does nothing but make the rich people richer. The fifth key is to treat money like a jealous lover. Millions of people wish for financial freedom, but only those that make it a priority have millions. To get rich and stay rich, you will have to make it a priority because money is like a jealous lover. Ignore it and it will ignore you. Or worse, it will leave you for someone who makes it a priority. The sixth key to being a millionaire by the time you're 30 is to realise that money doesn't sleep. Money doesn't know about clocks or schedules, or holidays, and you shouldn't either. Money loves people that have a great work ethic. Never try to be the smartest or luckiest person. Just make sure you outwork everyone. The seventh key to becoming a millionaire by the time you're 30 is to realise that being poor really sucks. I'm sure you know that. Money doesn't know about clocks. So you don't want to be poor. You want to be rich every minute of the day. Eliminate any and all ideas that being poor is somehow okay. Bill Gates said, if you're born poor, it's not your fault. But if you die poor, it is. The eighth key is to get a millionaire mentor. Most of us were brought up middle class or poor and then hold ourselves to the limits and ideas of that group. So you need to duplicate what millionaires do. Get a millionaire mentor and study them. Most rich people are extremely generous with their knowledge and their resources. You know, if if you mix with fat people, you'll end up fat. If you mix with people who are not interested in politics, you'll end up not being interested in politics. If you keep mixing with poor people, you'll end up poor. So mix with rich people. You'll learn a lot all along the way. The ninth key to being a millionaire by the time you're 30 is to get your money to do the heavy lifting. Investing is the holy grail in becoming a millionaire and you should make more money off your investments than you do our working And if you don't have surplus money, you won't make investments. Your money must work for you and do your heavy lifting. And the final key to becoming a millionaire by the time you're 30 is to shoot for 10 million, not 1 million. The biggest single mistake most people make is not thinking big enough. You know, if you go out looking for a job that's going to pay you $100,000 and you're fixed on that, you might get a job that pays you 100000 you might get one that pays you 90 but if you go out looking for a job that's going to pay you 50 you'll get a job that pays you 40 so always shoot for the stars there's no shortage of money on this planet i think there's something like 13 trillion dollars float around every day the only shortage is of people thinking big enough to get it so apply these 10 steps and they'll make you rich avoid get rich quick schemes they don't work Be ethical, never give up, and once you make it, 
be willing to help others to get there too. I just tore this piece out of the paper two days ago and it says, um, it's from Tokyo, it says food giant Nestle is hiring 1,000 robots as sales clerks at stores across Japan. The first batch of the chatty humanoids is called Pepper and they'll report to work by the end of the year at outlets that sell coffee and home espresso machines. Wow. So um, the 120-centimetre-tall robot is set to go on the market from February from about $2,000 a piece. That doesn't do a lot for unemployment, does it, really? In fact, doesn't do anything for unemployment. I guess the people making robots. So you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you've got questions about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer you on air or email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. So sign up now. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and I will be back in a a moment with my guest for this week. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and welcome to the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs, people who are extremely interesting, intelligent, worldly, and have something to share with other entrepreneurs that can help us all be a little bit more successful. And so in this segment, we try to find out what makes successful people tick so that we can learn from the things that have made them successful the things that have worked for them and the things that haven't worked for them, and also from the challenges they faced and how they overcame these challenges. One success story is Mike Dinsdale. He's the Chief Financial Officer of DocuSign. And uh, 
DocuSign is in digital transaction management, and that's driving multi-million dollar return on investment with market leaders like Salesforce, who we're all familiar with, McKesson, Comcast, who we're all familiar with for either good reasons or bad reasons, Orbitz, and a lot of others by dramatically streamlining processes. In doing so, it accelerates revenues, it cuts costs, and significantly improves customer satisfaction scores, which is critically important in today's digital world. So if you're interested in driving a major measurable impact in your organization quickly and at low risk, this interview is just for you. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for having me. Before I get into the business side of where you are now, what is your background? Tell us your journey from a mechanical engineer to a C-suite executive. How did that come about? Sure. So actually a pretty interesting story. Uh, I did mechanical engineering for two years, and I literally realized on my very first day of my first job, this was not for me. I sort of looked around, and, and nobody I worked with, even at that point, really inspired me and I sort of started to realize over time that there was such a, a much bigger world. There's this world of, of people who are starting companies, changing things, not sort of going through a path of, of taking 30 years to end up being in the C-suite and that sort of attracted me down to Silicon Valley. I literally uh, went back to business school, sold everything I owned, got in my car, drove down to Silicon Valley and lived on a sofa until I found my first startup and now I'm on my third. Good guy. I love that because I... When I was obviously um, when I left university, I was a an industrial chemist, and uh, I'd been on television up and through that st- team with a television show. So I um, I thought I was the first person in my uh, family ever to get any sort of college education. So I started as an industrial chemist. I lasted five days. I was in this laboratory with test tubes and stuff, and I thought, "Fuck, let me out of here." I don't want to do this. And so I didn't. <laughs> so I understand. It is amazing. And, it is amazing. you know, I urge people to be entrepreneurs because um, it's really it's frustrating and it can cause you some financial pain and lots of fights with your spouse. But it um, it's unbelievably satisfying. And, uh, you know, I urge people, I don't care what they do, whether they go out and... Um, um, open a dry cleaning store but become an entrepreneur go out and do something for yourself i think it's it, it's the way to go so well i think the other thing is i mean i think the other thing on that is every, all of us we have to get up every single day and we have to go to work yeah you might as well go to work somewhere that you're inspired and you're passionate and you're excited about it and you're surrounded with other people who feel the same way that's a great thing of course isn't it about working in silicon valley is that there's so much interchange of ideas and i reckon i've always said and i may well be wrong but i've always said you can learn more in an hour in starbucks up um around the corner from from microsoft or hp or whoever than you can almost anywhere else <laughs> absolutely so um your first startup what was that so the first startup I did was was called Velocity 11. It was a life science company right. that uh, was sold to Agilent in 2010. Then a company called Lithium, and now DocuSign for the last four and a half years. So what's the biggest, is there been a common issue that you've had in each of those three startups? Is there a common problem? 
they are different. So the first company was was not a heavy venture backed company. Uh, only raised five million in venture funding. Right. Grew it to only three hundred employees. The second one went from fifty to three hundred in two years. And this one really has been a blockbuster. It's gone from fifty employees to one of the year about twelve hundred and fifty. Uh, in four years, and the challenges are a lot different. This is a big venture back play. We've raised over two hundred and thirty million. Right. Uh, we did around this year of a hundred and uh, forty-five million. So big, big difference in terms of financing requirements, but also just the the market size we're attacking here is different. You know, at DocuSign, we're we're tackling a problem that faces every single person on the planet. And that is around this idea of digital transaction management. And our customers are both businesses, and then, of course, as consumers, we have the need to execute documents, which is essentially what we do electronically. Sure. You know, whether that be the car we're buying, the the house we're moving into, the insurance policy that we're signing up for, the the banking documents that we have, the healthcare uh, forms that we fill out when we go to the doctor, even. Yeah. So, is do you think that the increasing level of success and scale is due to you due to just better and better ideas or is it because you've learnt so much more you're better able to execute the ideas or what's the well i mean i think it's a combination of all these things i mean clearly great product always wins and solving a need that 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 people actually need solved and are willing to pay you money for yeah there's all sorts of of sort of successful companies from the perspective of lots of people using it, but then how do you turn that into making, making money? Yeah, and I think for DocuSign, you know, we're solving just we're solving a real business problem in a way that's changed that, that the world's changing to make the, the 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 sort of the things about our business better and better. Things like adoption of mobile connectivity, 4G, Wi-Fi being widespread, just this sort of change that 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 sort of millennials coming through and expecting to see and be served in different ways. Um, you think about you know big banks, which is actually our number one vertical globally, and all the things that they're faced with. How do they go from 2,000 uh, retail outlets or 2,000 brick and mortar locations to the digital world where people don't want to go there anymore? Yeah. I, mean, I haven't been to my my branch in I don't know 10 years. I have no reason to. In fact, it's a pain. <laughs> and that's a changing world. Yeah, that's true. Um, who who's your idol? Who, who who's the person that really? Um, you know, get you going. Uh, I mean, I've met so many great people um, over the last five years. It's unbelievable. Um, there's a guy named Ram Sharam that, that that somebody I met recently who was one of the early investors in Google and on the Google board, who was I you know very impressed with. But you know, I've been lucky enough to just meet some of the great CFOs as well. A guy named uh, Steve Sardello, who's the CFO at LinkedIn, or a guy named Graham Smith, uh, who was the CFO at Salesforce. Just great people across the board, and that's yeah. you know one of the, the sort of the things I've been fortunate uh, to be able to uh, to meet all sorts of amazing people. Okay, so how are companies um, driving multi-million dollar ROI with um, with digital trans- transaction management? How does that how does that work? How does how do you yeah, such a major yeah. difference in the ROI you drive? Yep, yep. So just to give a sense of the scale of, of DocuSign, so we've had uh, just under 50 million people use our product globally. We've had people execute transactions in every country in the world. So we right. say 188. There's 192 for the UN. Um, and when you think about what we do, it's, it's really helping companies transform to be completely digital. 
So getting rid of all that that break-in process that we all know, you know, right. FedEx packages, sending things in mail, an email even, of course, with an attachment, and then the process you need to go through, well, how do I fill that form out, and then how, how do I get it back? And then from the business side, well, now I've got this thing, how do I get the data out of this form and put it into my, my existing systems to track you or to initiate whatever it is, the shipment of the product or release of the service or whatever it is I'm signing up for. And so to automate completely that, that entire process and I'll then allow end users to be anywhere they want to be on whatever device they happen to have in their pocket. You know, if that's a, an iPhone or if that's an Android device or you're working on your Microsoft Surface right. and you can execute all those transactions wherever you are. And so the cost savings are huge and there's sort of a couple buckets. The first one is easy, hard cost savings. And you just think about the shipping costs. Um, one of our big customers, uh, Merrill Lynch, um, estimates over $30 million in uh, FedEx savings per year wow. by standardizing on DocuSign. I mean, these are huge numbers. Uh, B of A actually just uh, did a deal with DocuSign to standardize across all of their retail banking with, with DocuSign. And, you know, you think about processing costs and then reprocessing. So you send out some sort of a, a relatively complex form, whether that's an insurance policy or it's maybe uh, joining up with some firm like Morgan Stanley or UBS or Goldman yep. uh, or, or Wells Fargo as your uh, wealth management advisor. Automating all of those things, not having to go back and reprocess, meaning that you don't fill something out quite right in an insurance policy, say, and now they have to go and reprocess this. Or you lease a car and someone forgot to fill out you know, some important piece of information or their social security number doesn't have one number, it's missing one number. Right. And it has to be reprocessed. And companies have reprocessing rates up to 30% Jeez. on complex forms because their own employees don't even know how to, how to fill them out properly because yeah. they're complicated and they change. Well, we eliminate all of that. And so there's that, that sort of hard, collar, hard, hard cost stuff. And then there's things like just more revenue because you can increase throughput or you can refocus your Higher productivity, yeah. Higher productivity and higher value things as well. So uh, T-Mobile is one of our large retail customers, and they use DocuSign in all of their retail locations for new mobile phone contracts right. uh, on uh, tablets inside of the branches, and they took the process from about 50 minutes for a new customer down to about 12. And so now all of a sudden you can process five times the number of customers, and then the, the follow-on, of course, is great customer experience. Yeah, I, I less don't frustration. Walk into store and stand around for two hours because there's three people in front of me. Yeah, I'll well, leave. In fact, nobody would do that. They would leave. Yeah, so less frustration for customers and less frustration for staff too. I'd imagine, which in, improves morale, Absolutely. which improves, you know, which again improves productivity, and so it goes. Are you doing anything with healthcare? Because it seems to me that the one area in this country that there's more duplication than probably any other is healthcare, where you seem to fill in the same forms 5,000 times no matter where you go. Yep. One of the most frustrating things, and every single person experiences it, and yes, we are, um, a couple of different things there. So one, just, just going to visit the doctor. Yeah. We have now a product in market where you fill out all of those forms once before you get there online, or when you get there, your hands are a tablet and you can fill them out. Right. And then, of course, the benefit is the data is sucked straight back into the system, into the EMR record, into your your uh, medical record, electronic medical record. And then we're also doing things with lab processing, which is about 10 billion labs processed in the U.S. alone, although, of course, our focus is global. Yeah. And so automating that process with all of the various uh, acknowledgements and signatures that are required. If you have something that's uh, a disease that's, that's relatively severe, there's a certain time period that the doctor has to be able, has to inform you 
Right. So when you think about that process, hey, on the lab, I processed it, I send it to the doctor, the doctor acknowledges that they've received it, they can send it to the patient who can acknowledge they've seen it, and then the sort of protection around all that is, hey, I want to provide great service as a doctor. As a patient, I sure as hell care because I want to make sure I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And as an insurance company, I really care because I don't want to get sued because we missed it by two hours. Right. And so there's all sorts of things that fit into that, and our platform helps automate that entire process. So is um, is the product essentially only for the really big guys? No. So we actually serve what we say from enterprise to consumer-free. Right. So we have, um, as I mentioned, just under 50 million people who have used the product globally. Um, one of our big parts of our business is, in fact, just a pure web business. We right. have in the U.S. about 160,000 real estate agents that use DocuSign. Oh, okay. Uh, RP Data in Australia has uh, standardized on DocuSign in real estate. The Canadian Real Estate Association is standardized there. We're looking uh, for the same use cases in, um, in the U.K., in Brazil, in France, and in Japan. And our strategy has always been win the enterprise, win the consumer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Customers. Yeah, it, it's a strategy that we, we thought through about four years ago when we were quite small. <laughs> we realized that we need to do all the things that enterprises care about, and that's bank rate security, dial tone availability, it's always on, and have an infrastructure that scales. But hey, if you're a consumer, you know you don't really care about that. What yeah. do you care about? Well, you care about hey, I understand how to use this thing. It's intuitive. I like using it. It looks like other applications I would expect. And I can trust it, most importantly. Because and it saves me time. time. And it saves me time, of course. And frustration. And so <laughs> we realize that if you win those two, meaning the high and the low, then you really win the business. Yeah, I'm afraid, everything yeah. in between is some subset of that. So how can, um, you mentioned security, so how can DocuSign customers be sure that service is secure with all the security breaches that seem to be happening day in day out so all of the all of the, the transactions inside of our infrastructure are encrypted and right. we don't have access to the encryption keys so they're, they're they're tied to the account and then inside there's detection technologies and segregation of duty around who has access to different pieces of the of the infrastructure um, and so literally we can't see the contents of any of the documents inside of our infrastructure um, we also, for enterprises, go further, and we do uh, encryption keys on-prem, so that's behind the customer's firewall. They're in control of the encryption keys, um, and so you know that adds an extra layer, which is actually what's deployed at at uh, Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. Okay, so how how do you stop the hackers that um, from getting in and getting all this information? Well, so we have a, a very senior staff of folks that come from big banks, uh, the Secret Service. And we have we have very sophisticated people on our side who are right. always penetration testing, figuring out are there ways to break into our system. You know, the encryption technology obviously helps uh, dramatically sure. and reduces the risk related to us. But hey, the criminals out there are getting incredibly, incredibly they're getting smart. smarter and smarter, aren't they? <laughs> well, they're smart. They absolutely are. And I think for us, we feel good because a lot of our large enterprise customers, you know, the Microsofts, um, uh, HP, and folks like this. All of the folks that are our big customers have put us through annual testing and they do penetration testing on our infrastructure to make sure that we are secure. And so, you know, from our perspective, we're very open and encourage our customers to test the infrastructure because that just helps us uh, find any weaknesses, if there are any, 
Um, but it's something we take incredibly seriously. I mean, right down to physical security, we have cameras all over the office here. Uh, no one's allowed to walk around uh, unescorted and things like that. Uh, employees <laughs> are obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. <laughs> of course, it's like it's like when you go into Microsoft and all of a sudden your phones don't work and nothing. <laughs> and yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> You know, criminals are, are, as you say, they are getting very sophisticated. Very yeah, they sophisticated. are. Um, so, I guess most of the people listening to this this program are, are small business, or or at least in business, and digital transaction management has probably never crossed their mind as being an industry. Just how big an industry is it? Well, I mean, when we do market sizing. You know, we come with numbers between 30 and 50 billion, and we do believe that it's that it's something that makes the the life simpler, faster, and easier of every person that is trying to do any type of business, whether that be right. a small business or as an individual. And so, I think the easier way to think about it, digital transaction management as this sort of broad category, but peel it all back. What are we really doing? We're helping you automate transactions <laughs> using using mobile. So, you know, if you're a small business and you're sending out a quote or you're sending out an invoice or any type of document or contract that needs to be signed quickly, you can do that inside of our mobile application. Uh, I rented a, a, a house this weekend uh, in Northern California, and they sent me a PDF for me to sign the, the contract to, uh, to rent the house. Right. Well, I just opened that up in my DocuSign app, placed my signature uh, on the right place, and emailed it back to that person. And so I avoided the whole hassle of, well, what am I supposed to do with this thing now? Print it out? Fill it out, scan it, yeah. catch it, and send it back. I mean, that whole process is a pain is, in the ass. A pain, absolutely. It's a pain. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't have a printer at home anymore. I used to, but not anymore. So I couldn't even do that. Um, and we just, we just help people streamline that whole process. And it can be anyone can do what I just described for free. So that's not even a service that that people need to pay for. Where we make our money is, is people that use the product to send documents in the first place. So in that case I described. The person renting the house would have paid the monthly subscription fee. Right. It would have made their life much simpler to use DocuSign. Right. Okay. So now that we've touched on costs, how do how do the charges work? Um, from a simple, um, I want to have, have the ability to sign. You know, I get fifty contracts a year. I just want the ability to be able to sign them online really easily. Right up to um, you know the big. Um, big international operations. How does the charging work? Yeah, so the, the, the big organizations use a combination of usage, so a number of transactions. We have right. big insurance companies that will do about 100 million transactions a year, so very large numbers. Okay, do they and pay then, by transaction or do they pay on a they do. annual they do. contract basis? They do. On a transaction It's all basis. annual okay. contract or multi-year, but they pay per transaction under a contract. Okay, right. And the sort of seat-based, which would be for the smaller businesses, you pay a fee to have an account. Okay. In the case of, say, sending 50 or 100 contracts a year or renting a, a you know, rental property, it would be a monthly fee, and that's about $20 a month. Oh, okay. And with that, you know, if you're sending these contracts like I described, obviously not only is it easy for the person you're sending it to, but you have tracking all of a sudden. Now you know where it is, did they open it, and did you get it back? And not only did you get it back, but it's all, of course, in one place. Right. You know, you're not trying to figure out, oh, it's in my email somewhere, or I'm not sure I think I lost it because they handed it to me in person. Um, everything's yeah. retained, and it's, of course, secure. Yeah, I can see that being extremely 
valuable. So, what are the most popular industries that um, use DTM? Insurance the, is obviously the, one. What are the, yeah, yeah. What are the sure, most common sure. industries that um, use DTM? Yep. So really, really across the board. So our number one vertical was real estate when I started this company. Today it's financial financial services. So it's right. it's, it's big business. Um, insurance is another big one. But honestly, a big part of our business, 80% of our business is actually small and medium-sized businesses and individuals. When I say individuals, it would be a real estate agent, an insurance agent, uh, a, a contractor, a local contractor. 80% of our business today is people like that who are using the service just to make their lives easier and to run their businesses more smoothly. Well, I, um, that's interesting because I'm involved in a, um, um, an e-insurance company that's um, Chinese-based, but we're rolling out through um, all of South America and then through Asia over the next two years. So this sort of application would be perfect for processing um, insurance, both uh, when you're signing policies and also through the claims process and and all of that. That seems to me to be invaluable to that business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think of the different parts of that business. I mean, first off, to do anything international is difficult when you think of different geographies. In Japan, they still use a traditional honko stamp uh, instead of an actual signature, which is sort of traditional, about 2,000 years old. Integrating the cultural aspects into the product is important, which which we have done and are doing globally. We have people in Brazil, for instance, and there's a whole different set of cultural norms. But in the insurance case, you can take it down to, yes, there's policy, then there's, say there's a claim, and you might have an adjuster in the field. They could be standing there on a tablet, see the damage to your car, take a picture of it, attach that to the transaction, have the person sign to say yes, they accept, and make that transaction happen right there, process the payment, and be done. And you sort of streamline not just the initial policies, but there's all of the downstream processes that can be streamlined as well on the platform. Yeah, well, we're launching in Brazil. I've, I've spent... <laughs> A lot of the last month in Brazil. So, um, um, how do we go about? It? We just um, we just go online, or do I do we call for sort of the company? Yeah, for an embedded, depending on on what it is you're doing. I mean, for something like embedded into another business, then we would obviously have some of our folks talk and figure out how we would integrate the software, which we have a, a very built up uh, API to make that yep. process easy. If it's an individual, of course, yes, through the website. You know, and, and this idea of being global is 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 not no small task. It's not only the cultural. I, I uh, understand. Norm, but it's also yeah the infrastructure. They yeah. have a different uh, type of um, digital signing in Brazil than they do in in uh, in the U.S. or in say France or in yeah. Japan. Well, I, I'm certainly going to get um, our technical guys in Brazil to contact you because it sounds like something that uh, we certainly need to adapt in. Um, in our business. So you took the company global in what 90 days. Well, it's been uh, it's okay. been a multi-year process. I mean, certainly big strides have made in short periods of time. Um, but, you know, gaining traction in markets obviously takes uh, takes a little bit of time. Yeah, and it's 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 not easy. I mean, we've just been through the process of hiring um, the senior executives for um, um, Brazil. And uh, you know it's it's not an easy task because firstly the cultures are different they they're used to doing things a, a totally different way you've got to handle the fact that 
um, most people don't speak English very well and of course my Portuguese is absolutely non-existent <laughs> and so you know there's a and there's the different requirements from the government and different you know it's a it's a hell of a task even going into one country far less going into 192 or whatever there are so yep. do you do that from here or do you actually move into the country and um, and do it in the country as you go we have 25% of our employees there outside of the U.S., and, and our belief is that, yes, we do need people who have local knowledge and understanding sure. of, of, of culture, and not only that, speak the language. And it's, it's also, you know, the brands and business names. I mean, I don't know. I do happen to know in Brazil just because I've been there numerous times, but before I'd been to Brazil, I'd never heard of Ita, Itaú or Bradisco, some of the largest banks in Brazil, yep. or BBVA in Spain. I'd never heard of them until yeah. when I went to Spain because we don't walk down the street and see these companies. And so you do absolutely need people um, who are from those geographies who understand how business works there. That said, we tie the infrastructure back in through, through here in the U.S., um, but that's been critical to find the right leaders in different geographies, and it's pretty difficult. I mean, when you think of the example of Brazil and you don't speak Portuguese, well, how do you interview somebody, and it's how do you difficult. not end up biased towards someone who happens to speak English and think they're the best candidate when yeah. they might not be? Yeah, or that's in Japan, true. And it's the same; they they really don't speak English. Yeah. And and I think that's as you go global, you start to realize that most of the world really doesn't and certainly in the sort of western world that we may travel in today yeah they do and you can get by but there's definitely a very large part of the world that they just plain don't yeah and it brings me back to a few years ago when i was um, involved with coca-cola and and we thought the answer was to have um one global brand global promotions global everything we were going to you know the same ads, the same everything all over the planet. And, of course, that came to a screeching halt very quickly <laughs> because it simply yep. doesn't work. Um, with the success of e-signature and, and DTM in all of these countries you're in, where do you go next? What's the next step for you guys? Well, excuse me. I mean, I think we keep doing what we're doing. We keep building out into all these different geographies and taking the, the vertical success we've had Yep. Uh, here and in other geographies and, and replicate that. And then we continue to expand the platform and go deeper into in, into the transaction, do more and offer better things, meaning more features and other things to our customers, um, and continue to execute. You know, we'll be a, a business that's, that's 3,000 3, people in the next couple of years, and the market's very large. And so for us, we're not market constrained. We're, we're constrained, I guess, by the resources and our ability to move fast. Yeah. Um, but, of course, all businesses need to keep doing that to, to stay ahead yeah, and make sure they true. survive long term. So the people out there that are, that are listening that have got a business that's a 100 employee size, how do you take a company like that to the next level? What are the, what are the key things that you need to really focus on to make sure that you know, growing too fast doesn't kill you? Yeah, I mean, growing too fast is, is hard. We've gone this year from, from 600 to the number I mentioned, 1250, yeah. so doubled. And it, it, we're, we had the luxury of, of resources and being able to hire um, maybe faster than others may be able to. Growing a small business is a little harder than, than uh, a venture-backed one. Right. Um, but I think it's, it's focused on the stuff that matters is what I always think. I mean, it's get up every day and think about the things that make your brain hurt that you, that you, don't, that you, should, that you maybe feel like you want to put off today because it's Friday and you're thinking about the weekend, hit yeah. those ones. 
and do those things. And I think that's what, what ends up driving companies to greatness is just tackle the stuff that makes your brain hurt and hire the best possible people. And yep. every time you meet someone who's smarter than you, try and hire them. Yeah. Always hire somebody smarter than you because if you don't, all you can do Absolutely. is go backwards. Yep. No, I agree. You know, people say that, but I think you really need to do it. You know? Well, most people don't That's do it because they they think they're undermining their own position, and there's a chance that you know they're going to get usurped. So, why why yeah. am I going to usurp myself? No, I understand sure. that. Mike Dinsdale, thank you very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. I really appreciate it, mate. And I'm serious about that. And I'm serious about that. Um, um, getting you involved in our insurance business, I'm I'm going to get the um, um, chief technical guy for us to um, to get in touch with you. Um, so if you'd like to know more about Mike and DocuSign, go to DocuSign, D-O-C-U-S-I-G-N dot com. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'll be back with you after this short break. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Show. Coming to you this week from my hometown of Los Angeles. This is my favorite part of the year because next week we have Thanksgiving, which I love. And this is the segment of the show where we bring you emails from our listeners all around the world. It's incredible. Despite the different cultures, all of the emails are applicable to everybody, no matter what size business you've got. And whether you're in Australia or America or England or Moscow, makes no difference. They're all um, applicable. My first email today comes from Jeffrey Pasternak from Detroit, Michigan. And uh, Jeffrey says, Dear Bob, thank you for an excellent show. I really enjoy it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It certainly taught me there's a lot more to having a successful business than a great product. You talk off and on about how important it is to build a successful brand and a cut-through message around your product. But my question is, how important is it to develop your own personal brand quite apart from the brand you build for your business? I notice that your marketing company is called Market Force One Business Strategies and let you seem to constantly build the Bob Pritchard brand as well. Is that a deliberate strategy? Jeffrey, that's a good question. I think there's two parts to that. One, um, yes, it's a deliberate strategy and it's certainly good for business and it certainly rubs off well um, on uh, Market Force One Business Strategies, but I'm also an egocentric and it plays to my ego. <laughs> But in my case, I've two quite different businesses. One is the Bob Pritchard business, which is speaking and writing books and the radio program. And then there's Market Force One, which is assisting uh, corporations to develop business strategies, create advertising and marketing campaigns, etc., etc. So although while they're quite different businesses doing quite different things, 
there's no question that the profile that is built up with Bob Pritchard certainly assists us to market Market Force One. So while the consumer purchasing benefit for Bob Pritchard is the business leader's advisor, Market Force One uses the purchasing benefit when you are serious about being successful. And they, they dovetail in. So they're designed to be complementary and uh, they both strongly success, su- suggest success and they reinforce each other. So, Jeffrey, I'd have to say that developing what's called a personal brand is a great way to position yourself in your industry and achieve a competitive edge. So let's assume that your product, off, your business offers excellent products and services. You promote the business well and you spend money on publicity, advertising and marketing. So let's assume that. Your company also offers excellent customer service and you actively use social media and mobile media platforms. Business is good. Your business is holding its own. But potential customers do not see you as the expert. They'll go to the person who they see as the go-to person. So professionals and many other types of small business ventures, initially at least, you are the project, the product. You're it. And, you know, I often say that, um, you know, what you're selling out the door is a byproduct of who you are and the way you market yourself. And that's quite often has nothing to do with the product. And... Um, whether you like it or not, people will buy you before they buy your product or service. So you might have the best product or service in the world, but if people don't like you, they're not going to deal with you. So how you market yourself can actually be more important than your products, your prices, or even how smart you are. You need to make yourself the expert in your field. Work on becoming a totally dominant force in your niche. You know, your target audience wants to do business with the company or the person that they believe to be the best, don't they? And what you portray is what you become. So, but remember that your brand will appear, appeal to prospective customers only if it offers them the benefits that they're seeking. In other words, you know, they'll buy into your brand only if there's something in it for them. So don't build your brand in a vacuum. Put the message in terms that translate to what your target audience wants and needs. Jeffrey, building a personal brand is not for everyone. You need to have the right sort of outgoing personality, something that people will really relate to. It also doesn't work in all types of businesses, but, but in my view, it can only help you if you do it correctly. Jeffrey, I'm going to send you a copy of Marketing Magic, a book that I wrote a few years ago with Brian Tracy and Jay Conrad Levinson and um, Robert Bly. I'm sure you'll really enjoy it. We'll get that off to you tomorrow. Now, I'm just trying to find a short email because I don't have a lot of time left. Um, I'll start on this one. A couple of weeks ago, I started talking about how to protect your uh, intellectual property. Now, there's nothing, this was from um, Kent Buchanan from Vancouver, Washington, and I started it last week or the week before. There's nothing to stop your competition from taking a basic idea and running with it. Nothing. They can develop it, they can improve it, but you can and must protect your inventions and your brands. 
You can do it through patents and copyrights and trademarks. They're the primary means of intellectual property protection. Let me just give you a quick overview of each of these. You know, a patent provides you with legal protection for something that's novel, unique, non-obvious, and clearly defined. Patents prevent others from making or marketing your specific invention, and it protects you for 20 years. But to get a patent, you must file an application with the US Patents and Trademarks Office. They're not cheap, and a good patent attorney will make it even more expensive. But if the invention is critical to your business, it is really worth it and essential. So it's critical for you to realize that the rights granted by a U.S. patent extend only through the territory of the United States and have no effect in a foreign country. So any entrepreneur who wishes to get patent protection in other countries must apply for a patent in each of the countries or in a regional patent office. Almost every country has its own patent law. And a person desiring a patent in a particular country must make an application for a patent in that country in accordance with the requirements of that country. So it's not easy and it is expensive. Next week, we'll talk about copyrights and trademarks. And uh, now if you're a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, and also what you learn from other people's emails. Please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com. Subscribe to my monthly newsletter. The newsletter goes out every month to about uh, 16,000 people in 60-odd countries. And uh, one will be going out again soon. So go to the website and subscribe. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, Plus. become my contact on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn all the time. So until the same time next week, this is Bob Pritchard, hoping you have a fantastic and successful week. Go out and kick some butt. Remember, if you're not learning, your competition probably is. And when you meet head on, if they know more than you do, they'll win. We've all worked too bloody hard to let some other bastard win, haven't we? So please continue to learn everything there is to know about your business. Because those who listen to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show every week are winners. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.